Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I think that parents, especially parents of neurodivergent kids, need the permission to take care of themselves even mm-hmm. more. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say even more, but they really, they really need this message as well because there's an extra ounce of um, shame that you are saying because your child is neurodivergent, then Mm. you are having a hard time and you're blaming your child's brain. How could you do that? They were born that way. And so I want to give the message to any parents out there who have neurodivergent kids that you still deserve to take care of yourself first. I know you are doing the best that you can right now. Your relationships matter to you. You are important. And yet over time, we get stuck. We get lost or we stop showing up as our true self. We get hung up on the stories we tell ourselves, the comparisons, or feeling like we are not good enough. I'm Not Your Shrink is a podcast aimed at helping you feel connected to yourself, to others, and to live a life that is in line with what matters most to you. I'm Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair and being a wife and mother to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Let's dive in. Today's episode is all about neurodiversity and sensory processing and a lot of really good stories in between. It's one of those episodes where I could have just kept talking with today's guest. Now, if you don't fully know what neurodiversity or sensory processing mean, don't worry. Laura Pedix and I are going to dive into this in today's episode. Laura Pedix is a neurodiverse affirming pediatric occupational therapist who specializes in sensory processing skills for neurodivergent individuals. She is a parent to a neurodivergent daughter and CEO of the OT Butterfly, where she educates parents through her podcast, social media, one-on-one parent coaching, and other digital resources on how sensory processing can have a direct impact on learning and behavior. Now, here's the really fun thing around podcasting is that before I click the official record between me and a guest, we usually start having a really great conversation. I often have this voice in my head that says, just record as soon as we both jump on because that is the best part. That's not to say we're not showing up authentically throughout the conversation, but there's just something else that shows up at the beginning. This is what happened for Laura and I in today's session. And that is that I was telling her a story about myself and my son. We are both highly sensitive people and how being able to label and discover this part of us has really helped us to understand our environment and also to find things that are going to feel really good for us. I was telling Laura the story from the weekend where my son was at a birthday party and then he was at the park and he requested to stay outside to kick the soccer ball. Greg had said, why don't you come in, buddy? And I said, you know what? Let's just leave him outside. I'll sit at the window and watch, and then we'll see what happens. This is where Laura and I jump into our conversation. 
And so I sat by the window. I was doing a little bit of my work and just watched him out the window as he kicked the ball back and forth. And it didn't hit me until later that night. And so I was trying to help Greg understand this kind of profile of the highly sensitive person where my son last yesterday was at a two hour birthday party intense a nerf wars birthday party cool so cool wow but also very overstimulating and then he came home to then quickly go out to the park with two other boys in the neighborhood and then he came back and i had said to greg if we brought him in at that moment he probably would have got into a fight with her sister he probably would have gotten to that place of just being overwhelmed with us And it would have just spiraled downhill. And so watching him outside kick that ball back and forth against the house for 15 minutes was his way of discharging all of that. And Laura, we had a great night after that. And he slept so well. Now, were you able to link that for your son? Like, oh, I wonder if he's aware soccer is fun and also, you know, maybe bedtime was a little later or you'd have to come in 15 minutes early. But did you know you actually like served your nervous system by doing that? Because that's the extra little icing on top, right? I will take this as a nudge from the universe. I'm sitting with you today (laughs) to then go back to him tonight because that wasn't something that I did. I I didn't get the chance to loop back. I didn't do story time with him last night. Greg did. I did it with my daughter. We, We rotated up. But one of the things I've been doing with him, and this completely relates to our conversation today around neurodivergence, but I've been labeling it for him where our brains aren't like everybody else's and that we feel this sense of our environment really deeply and our marble jars overflow quicker and those kinds of things. And so he's been able to use words like I'm overstressed, I'm overstimulated, I need quiet or things like that. So that's kind of what we've started to do, which I think is powerful. That's absolutely so powerful to give them that because then my husband is more likely to listen to my daughter's needs when she says it that way versus me coming up from above. She really needs this right now. Just let her have it. And then it turns into this battle between spouses of like, oh, there you go again. Tell me what to do. with. But if he hears this little tiny voice saying, daddy, I think I need some extra time. It feels good to my body or this is what my body Mm. needs right now. How can how can you say no to that? If, if you teach them those words and self-advocate. So that's been 100%. like a huge part. That's been a huge part of my work with parents. In addition to educating about sensory stuff and the actual strategies, like kicking the soccer ball against the house is perfect. But then really saying like, now your job is to really link this for your child. Because I think one of the parts that I see happen so often with parents that I work with is I feel like parents, we spend so much time consulting the professionals, reading the mm. books, reading the podcasts, taking notes. And great. This is really proactive. You're doing the best things that you can for your kids. And we're taking notes. And like we form this guidebook, a code, a secret code of our, how our kid's brain works. And we're like so excited. And then we put things into action. And then we forget to share the code with our kids. Mm-hmm. It's like, I figured out how your brain works. Cool. Let me do this and this and this to set you up for success. But then if we don't share it with them, that's when I get the questions from parents. Well, how is he going to do this when he's in college or when he's in work? If he doesn't get used to it now, then he's not going to be able. And I'm like, well, if we teach him how his brain works, he can set up his lifestyle and talk to his friends, have his boss understand this. He can have all these tools for himself and you won't need to do anything. Mm. And so you don't have to worry if you're there or not. That's the missing piece for me. 
Right. I think that is so important of being able to close that loop and come back to it. Okay. So Laura, you and I are just diving right in, which I absolutely love love this because we have a special two-part episode. So we're doing part one here where you're here on my podcast. And then we're going to talk about what is neurodiversity. We're going to talk about looking at the neurotypical brain versus the neurodivergent brain and also what parents can do. And you, you and I are already like using these real life examples. And then we're going to do part two, which you've already brought in here, which is what do we do as partners when we have this knowledge, but our other parenting partner doesn't and doesn't quite see it. And we don't want to come in from this like top down perspective on them because then that disrupts the the partnership, the marital bond, the relationship bond. So there are going to be two great sessions coming from this. So excited. I'm so excited. And also because I have loved watching your reels. I have loved consuming all things on the OT butterfly. And I was in near tears before jumping on here, watching you and your daughter. This is pinned on your space. And it's just like one of those, oh God, I'm going to get like tearful talking about it. It's like one of those healing conversations. Yeah. It's this big part of what we're breaking generationally with our children. And for the listeners, please go check it out. Laura is braiding her daughter's hair. And will you you tell me, what is it that you were doing there? Yeah, so it's really funny. I want to give background to this reel. It is pinned to the top of my page. My intent behind this was not let me record my daughter and I doing morning affirmations, which is essentially what the video is. In fact, to, I don't know if this takes down the wall a little bit and if people change their mind about me, people are like, you do this every morning. That's amazing. I don't do that every morning. This is what happened. I just wanted like background. Be real. A video. Be real. You wanted to be real. I I know to be real. So I was like, I'm not even going to record the sound. Like we can talk silly. Like it's, you don't have to look at the camera. Mommy's just like brushing your teeth. I'm going to put music over it and text. And she's, she's into this phase of copying everything I say. So I'm like, do you want to braid over here? Do you want to braid over here? I said, do you want a red tie? And she was copying. And I know that that's her like connection, playful game. Mm. This was the first time I was like, she's copying everything I'm saying. So I'm going to say things for her to copy. And so I started saying affirmations, but this is not a common thing for us. I've done this maybe a handful of times. I've always been that parent who said I wanted to do more affirmations, but I've never done it consistently. So that's where it started. And so this was like a longer video that I just cut off because as it was happening, I saw she said this really powerful, I don't even know the right adjective to describe it after saying my affirmations. And you can see the shift in her facial expression almost as she sees what I'm doing. So I'm saying all these affirmations. I am flexible. I am this, I am that. And then she says, I, but sometimes I'm a bad kid. And then I was quickly like, oh, and in the moment I'm like, don't, you know, don't try to change your mind too fast. Like, tell me what you mean by that. You did it beautifully was... by saying, what do you mean by that? Yeah. What do you mean by that? And she said, because I yell. And then that was when I was able to remind her that I yell too, which I said mm-hmm. in that video, mommy loses control of my, my voice and my volume mm-hmm. and things I say doesn't make me a bad mom. So I was modeling that. And then I was able to reinsert something that we've been talking about for a long time, which is her sensory cup which for her, she knows she has a small sensory cup, which we can get into, talk about oh, what I love that, that means, language, which means that it gets overflowed quickly. 
And when that happens, that's when it's really hard for her to stay in control of her body. And she's still a good kid and all of those things. So, and we also talk about her having a worry bug, which is more of her anxious, getting stuck on some thoughts sometimes that also contribute to the behavior that she thinks is bad, Mm. that she probably hears other kids, other parents, which I've never said you're a bad kid. No, kids internalize this. This is, they, they know because they perceive it from us. So whether we're doing it intentionally or not, our children know when we downshift from happy mom to not happy mom, Mm -hmm. right? And as kids, we want our parents to be happy because that feels good for us. Mm -hmm. That's about safety and connection. And so they know that yelling doesn't bring us necessarily safety and connection or hitting, right? Mm -hmm. So they Mm -hmm. connect that to then. And again, this is how our brains work as children, good versus bad. It's a dichotomy. So she's used to us not really saying she's a bad kid, but yes, she has seen us have to have these big stressful moments sometimes in response to this dynamic that happens when one of us, not even just her, when one of us is dysregulated Mm -hmm. and then it dysregulates the other. And then we've all got our like nervous systems yelling at each other in fight or flight. And I love that. Sorry, I just want to interrupt you again. (laughs) Our nervous systems, right? These are our nervous systems. They're yelling at each other. They're yelling at each other and no one's actually really listening to each other Mm -hmm. in those moments. And I have the brain and the background and the information to know to look beyond that, but she doesn't. And Mm -hmm. so spending the time to fill in those gaps for her has been something that I've been really, really being intentional about more so in the past like six months as she's gotten older and is more around friends and seeing a lot of different brains, a lot of different behaviors and Mm -hmm. putting that all together for her. It's such a crucial thing. Support for today's episode comes from Loop Earplugs. For so long after having children, I kept wondering why I was easily overwhelmed and felt like an angry mom. The noise from the kids, the dog barking, and the sounds around me from everyday life. But I now understand that I'm not an angry mom, and instead, my nervous system gets overwhelmed and overstimulated, which is why I've been turning more and more to my loop earplugs to help me stay more regulated and engaged with the family. I'm using Loop Engage to help dampen the sound around me, and these Loop earplugs allow me to still be with every beat and conversation. I still hear Greg. I can still hear the kids. I love that they are so comfortable, and they come with eight silicone ear tips to ensure the right fit for you. The best part for me is that I take them everywhere with me. They are proving the test of time and not to mention they're stylish in my ears. Plus, we love the kids versions, which we've been able to take to the movies for our kids. I'm so excited that Loop Earplugs is offering you, my community, a discount so that you too can tackle that overstimulation while still being engaged with the activities and people you love. Visit loopearplugs.com and use my code loop times Dr. Tracy for 10% off your order. That's L-O-O-P-X-D-R-T-R-A-C-Y for 10% off your order. Support for today's episode comes from ZocDoc. We all know there are things in life we have to compromise on, like the right way to load a dishwasher or whether those socks are going to stay on the floor for a week. Okay, in all seriousness, but when it comes to your mental health, 
There is no compromise. So we don't need to go back to that one therapist or one physician who didn't align with what we need just because they're available right now. We don't need to compromise on the care we need for our overall wellness. Instead, this is where ZocDoc comes in. This is a place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. And you can find someone who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your well-being. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. Go to ZocDoc.com I-N-Y-S and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. If I needed this app, this is one that I would be going to. That's zocdoccom slash I-N-Y-S and get the care that you need today. So I can remember having the negative thoughts about myself as a kid. I'm a bad kid or, you know, some of the like self-punishment thoughts or, oh, I'd be better off dead. I remember having those thoughts and I didn't really knew where they came from as a kid, but it's been really interesting to watch my son who also has these. They're not, not that those were things that I grew up hearing either, but they're not things that we talk about, but it just goes to show how our brains go to that negative filtering space, how natural that is. And then also sometimes us seeing it from other kids, right? So that also is part of that. And it amazes me actually how much of those like therapy type interventions that I use with kids, which is what you did with your daughter in that video, Mm -hmm. which is you disconnected that shame piece, right? Like you, you do something that's not great and you can make a different choice. Um, so that's Mm -hmm. taking away shame. You did this other piece around, you know, normalizing of I'm not perfect either. Right. And so in Mm -hmm. cognitive language, we're like expanding perceptions, such a powerful piece that, you, oh gosh, I don't know, Laura, when I saw that video, I just thought, you know, you're just so present with her in that moment that you're able to tackle that piece and almost change this narrative that how easily children slide into. Mm-hmm. I'm a bad kid. I do bad things. That was the first time I think I'd ever really fully heard her verbalize something like that at such a neutral time, right. which for me felt more powerful mm. than her in the middle of a meltdown or anger, right? When it would be like, oh, you're just in the heat of the moment. But for her to pull that out completely separate, she was completely regulated. I'm like, wow, this is really part of your narrative inside of your head that you really think that. And so that has stuck with me for sure since that conversation happened. And I'm just happy that other people are, I get comments from people saying that healed my inner child from oh, conversations. Gosh, from, I and I love hearing that and the work that, that we're doing with this generation. I'm excited to see how this can shift because we could really use a different direction. <laughs> The exhausting work. I had just said to my girlfriends, to some of my mom friends that, you know, this is really exhausting for our generation as parents because the amount of work we are doing is exponential with the boom of technology, with the spread of information. Greg and I talk about this all the time of just how much information we're trying to absorb. Our brains can't keep up with it, which is incredibly hard. I wanted to connect that with an experience I had with my son. And that was a moment where he was dysregulated and we had an hour long meltdown. And these are those moments where it really tests us as being regulated and calm parents. 
they are hard. And Greg and I looking back, and I also did close the loop with my son afterwards, the next day we had talked about, we didn't manage the environment. So what happened was we were with friends. We were having a fantastic ski weekend, but the kids were having so much fun. We let them stay up late. Recipe, like mistake number one, right? So 10 p.m. they go to bed, but gosh, they didn't have a good night's sleep because of something that was happening with my daughter. And then the next day we're skiing. So that's a big stress on the body. And then there was just no downtime for him. So we can see the mistakes that we had. But in that moment, they were the really big thoughts that have come out. And I think it's important for us as parents to not freak out when our kids have these big thoughts. I'd love to hear your opinion on this as well, or maybe what you would tell parents to do in these moments. Because I know so many parents are like, what does this mean? What's what's going to happen? The words that came out and that we've heard in these big meltdowns are things like, I'm just going to fall asleep and have nightmares. I would be better off dead. There's no point in being part of this family, right? Like they're mm-hmm. just, re- they're, they're things that we have never said to him. Mm-hmm. And they're really hard to hear. Yeah. And the way I understand it is in a way it's, you're not listening to me is one piece. I'm so exhausted is another piece. I'm so angry. My body is out of my control. I don't know what to do in these moments. That last one is the first thing that jumps out of me is that part of the his protection part of his brain where it's that shutdown. You know, there's fight, flight, fawn or freeze. I would put it in that category of either, I don't really know between the fawn or freeze part, but the part where I feel I can't even mobilize my body to do anything to protect it. So I'm just going to shut down. And I just, the wanting to sleep and have a nightmare thing feels like a very strong it's almost like saying, like, I don't really want to process my emotions awake. I want to sleep and I'll process them in my dreams. Oh, I know. Right? Like, but, but, but the, the like idea that. that this is so painful, not this in the context of like him existing in our family or something that we did or something that happened during the day. By the way, he didn't come up for cake. We all had cake. He didn't have the chance to have cake. It just spiraled, yeah. right? Everything yeah. spiraled yeah. within that. Oh, yeah. But it was like almost as you're saying that, I'm thinking, This is the experience of so much pain internally that it's like, I just want to get out of my skin. Yeah. So much pain internally. Don't know how to deal with it. Don't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And also wanting my parents to hear that piece. So he's saying it in the most exaggerated way or strongest way that he knew how. And that's hard as parents to hear the word, but then pause and know what it means behind it and know that it doesn't mean the words itself. But that's a scary thing to hear as parents, for sure. Totally. And yet in that moment, then it calls on me to be regulated. So I know I'm kind of jumping all over. I'm going to jump back. But in that moment, then what do parents really need to focus on when they're sitting with a child who is just in that meltdown beyond regulated point? Yeah. So. What I tell parents, whatever a child is saying during a meltdown, right? Sometimes it's those big statements about how they feel, but sometimes it's the, I hate you and you're the worst, this, all of the the words that we are focused on. And I feel like they're in the air and we're like focused on the words that are said out there. I always tell parents that they're not coming from like a logical space. That's the first part that parents don't understand these through really big moments of dysregulation, like hour long dysregulation, your nervous system is not naturally coming back from it. It's not really resilient enough at that moment to just come back to a state of logic. 
And so the thing that's, I think, hard for parents to understand and grasp is when you're in the middle of a meltdown or a really dysregulated emotional reaction, the language and logic centers are offline, the higher parts of the brain. And that's hard to understand because it's like, well, they're using their words, but Mm -hmm. a lot of it is not really logical, coherent. Sometimes my daughter will jump around and yell at one thing and then yell at the other or yell complete opposites. Mm-hmm. Well, I want that. Well, now I don't want that. This is the part where I'm not really going to engage with the mm-hmm. words. The words. And I'm just looking at the child who is extremely dysregulated. If you haven't yet, really, really try to observe your child's patterns of this. For my daughter, it starts early with, I call them unreasonable requests. When she starts asking for things that she knows the answer is no. And I'm like, okay, it's starting. You know, I've got my own things where I'm like, it's going to start. The words don't mean anything. She's dysregulated. So it's really about reminding yourself that the words are not really coming from a place of logic. So to not take them personally. Mm. Also, I tell parents that it's okay to ignore the words because sometimes their words are questions. Well, Mm. why aren't you answering me? And so Mm. are you going to sit with me? And I, I said, I want this. And And it's really hard for parents. And I say, it's not ignoring the child and it's not walking away. It's just saying, I know, I hear you. You're so tired or I love you. Or sometimes I don't even say words depending on how dysregulated my daughter is. Mm -hmm. I'll just say, oh, and I'll breathe. And she goes, you're not answering me. And it eventually stops. And then the repair, the connection later. And think, remember earlier, you really wanted me to talk. I know that that was your worry bug. I was trying not to feed your worry bug or whatever language that you have used to educate your child about their dysregulation and how that shows up for them. Mm, I like that. We use anxiety brain with my son and we think of it like a, a, a knob that we can turn up and turn down. And, you know, it's interesting too, to even have the experience of two different children because my daughter, it looks very different for her. And it's funny, her questions will like go to these future states of, I'd like to have two children and I want to have two girls and I'm going to name one Sarah. What if I don't get to have a daughter? And what if I can't have kids? And it's like, Oh, dear. (laughs) And what works for her is we do imagery to put these thoughts in a box. And that works for her. I love that. But for my son, who we've identified as a highly sensitive child, that doesn't work for him. I'm going to ask a little bit more on that piece. So the parent in that moment, don't hang on to the words. I'm imagining mom, dad taking those slow deep breaths and then what what else should they do in those big moments because I think sometimes what parents want to do is they tap into this space of control yeah because we feel out of control and so we just want it to stop I say if you want to control something control yourself that's the Mm. most control you have over it we remind you can't control your child you can control the environment to some extent but you can really control yourself and regulation can be contagious dysregulation can be contagious as well. It's probably more contagious than I think regulation. So if you can find whatever tunnel vision you need to stay regulated and control your own body and control your own thoughts and control your own behavior, that's going to be the most effective way to get through the meltdown. Because that's really what you're doing at that point. There is no goal of stopping the meltdown. Your goal is to get through it, especially if Mm. we're talking about uh, neurodivergent kids or kids who are prone to more extreme dysregulation than others, there really is no, how can parents control the meltdown? It's how can you best control your own regulation? Whether that does mean to step away for a second or two or a couple minutes, that's okay to to collect yourself first Mm -hmm. and, and make sure that you 
can think about the words that your kid's saying or the things that they're doing and Mm -hmm. what's going to be best and safest for everybody in that moment. Again, which looks so different for every family and every dynamic. I always encourage parents to really sit and think critically that what works for this family might not work for the other. And if you're seeing a lot of messaging out there that says this, like never, well, of course, we're going to talk about physical abuse, emotional Mm -hmm. abuse. That's always a hard no. But other things like having to leave your child when they're having a meltdown, it depends. What if you've got two other kids who are over here that really need you for a safety reason? You will have to, and that is okay. We cannot clone our bodies. Mm -hmm. What if you are still working on your own triggers as a parent with trauma? And if you don't leave that room, you might do something you regret. You absolutely need to take control of your body and prioritize Mm -hmm. that first and then come back. And you always have the chance to repair later. Mm. So focus on if you need to control something in the environment, control yourself as best as you can. And the rest will follow. Eventually, the meltdown will end. And then you can talk about it after or the next day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. And that's something Greg and I are practicing doing by kind of tapping out. And at one point, my son had said, like, where's daddy? I'm so awful. That's why he left. And I had just put that in not to not use too many words in those moments, but just, mm-hmm. yep, daddy needed to look after himself. He needed to go take a yep. few breaths for himself. He exactly. also felt overwhelmed and over, right? Like, so that he can understand that it's not 100%. about him. A hundred percent. We normalize everybody's sensory cup. Like I have a sensory cup with my daughter. I always talk to parents. It's like, you have to have the talk with your kid when they're really young. And I'm like, it's not the talk you're thinking about. It's the talk about their, about their sensory cup. And then just everyone has this level playing field of talking about it and normalizing need. You don't have to keep secrets of like, mommy and daddy need to go to bed too. Or like, nope, got to have time for ourselves. The same thing, you know, mommy has a small sensory cup for, for sound. There's too much sound going on right here. I need to go in the other room. Mm. I need to have a minute to myself. I need to not be disturbed. My door is closed for a reason. Please go downstairs and finish your snack. I'll be with you in a minute. The same thing. If she sees my husband or I upset, we don't know. We weren't upset. Matt would say, oh yeah, I was feeling a little upset. I was having a hard time keeping my words under control. So I went to the other room to sit in quiet and dark to dip out from my sensory cup. This is just a part of our language and she gets it. And I take mom staycations. I'll go at a hotel for a weekend and she's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm getting some alone, quiet time. Some of mommy's favorite things to do. You're gonna have so much fun with daddy. And I don't need to hide it. It's so liberating to be be so honest, wear our emotions on our sleeves because I feel like I didn't get that as a kid. No. This is a podcast episode in itself, Laura. I mean, I where know. are we going? We're totally we're derailed going? here and I love how it. Gonna, like, how are we going to summarize uh, this I'm in the at, bullet points? Uh, this piece around how I think mothers, and I think we're starting to change, but there's this feeling of like mom is never affected or mom shouldn't have needs or... And, and that is so faulty because then our kids will say, well, you never struggled. And I always like to go back to this question in life of imagine 20 years down the road and your child comes to you. What would you rather them know? My mom struggled or my mom never struggled? Mm. And how important it is that we can normalize that we have needs, we have experiences, we feel overwhelmed. We have to, you know, even the piece where I'm trying to be really conscious of this, of teaching our children. 
I take mom's vacations too. I go to a hotel room and it's just me and I love them very much and I need time for myself. And then this relationship piece, the kids thought we were fighting one day in the car where we were off skiing or something. And Greg and I got into a little bit of a disagreement. I can't even remember what it was about. But then the kids were like, what's going on? Get along, you two. And I had just completely normalized that, you know, just like you two, how you get into fights and disagreements, we do too. And so we're not hurting each other, but we are trying to talk out how we've each experienced something and then to come to a compromise to move forward, which is really normal in a relationship. Like you don't have to like each other all the time. And they're like, oh, okay. oh. <laughs> that's great yeah. to know. That's like pressure removed, right? That's cool. Yeah. Support for today's episode comes from Cozy Earth. Picture this, you're planning your summer getaway, what to eat, where to visit, what to do, and where to sleep. But what about the comfort of home while you're away? This is something I'm constantly considering because if I'm uncomfortable in my clothing, then I'm more irritated and then things overall just don't feel great. And this is where Cozy Earth comes in. Right now, you can get 35% off with code SHRINK at checkout. Cozy Earth isn't just about creating luxurious bedding and loungewear. It's about elevating and transforming your entire travel experience. Their bedding is so soft and buttery smooth, it beats any hotel sheets I've ever slept in. And Cozy Earth's bedding comes in these adorable totes, making it travel-friendly and hassle-free. These have been my go-to sheets for well over a year now, and they are a must no matter where you go. Plus, their loungewear is perfect for those long flights or car rides. Their temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew ensures that you stay cool and comfy on those long flights. I know not everybody is hitting the road or the skies this summer, and that's totally okay. You can also create your own sanctuary at home, and Cozy Earth has everything you need to make every moment feel more blissful. Trust me, once you experience the comfort and quality of Cozy Earth, you'll never want to go back. My pajamas, the kids keep asking why I'm still wearing them. Visit CozyEarth.com, use my code SHRINK, S-H-R-I-N-K, at checkout to get 35% off. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. I think that parents, especially parents of neurodivergent kids, need the permission to take care of themselves even mm -hmm. more. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say even more, but they really, they really need this message as well, because there's an extra ounce of shame that you are saying because your child is neurodivergent, then mm. you are having a hard time and you're blaming your child's brain. How could you do that? They were born that way. And so I want to give the message to any parents out there who have neurodivergent kids that you still deserve to take care of yourself first. It's not an attack on your child's brain. And it's not saying that you wish you had another child. It's that this experience is harder than probably you imagine for parents, which is something that took a long time for me to even process that it's okay to say that parenthood was not what I expected. Mm. And this is just not what I expected to do. This is not what, how I expected it to go. And that surprised me. And as someone who has a brain that really needs to be in control of things and likes things in order and everything is formulaic, like if I do this, then this happens and this happens. I'm like, well, 
I did all of those things. And my kid is still not what I expected. And yeah, because kids are not robots. They're not animals that you can train. They're humans and they have different brains. And so that took a long time for me to accept. And knowing that now I'm comfortable and confident in my motherhood experience where I can still tell her when I'm overwhelmed and it doesn't have to be an attack on her Mm. neurodiversity, right? Right. It's separate. It is separate. Okay. You've used neurodiversity. So for those who don't know what it is, what is neurodiversity? Yeah. So the way that I explain this is as humans, we are considered a neurodiverse species. All of us, we all have Mm -hmm. different brains. Every brain is Mm -hmm. different, just like a fingerprint. But even within that, there is still a particular pattern, a more common pathway of development, I'll say, where we all still have differences in the way that we prefer things in the way that we explore the world in the way that we talk and behave. But more or less, there's this general average common pathway that we more or less follow in terms of development, but we're still neurodiverse as a species. Mm -hmm. There is this other track of development that comes with an even more deviated path that we consider neurodivergent individuals where their brains are uniquely wired in a way that makes them communicate, learn, behave, explore the world, take in the world in a more different way than this common pathway. And it impacts them in a way that they may need a little bit more help functioning, participating, enjoying life because the rest of the world is functioning in the neurotypical world. So that relies on accommodations and modifications and some, you know, learning style differences and all of the things that we use to help them succeed. But the neurodiversity movement, which is something that people might be hearing. And if you hear someone that says that they are neurodiverse affirming is someone who believes that we don't need to make neurodivergent people appear more neurotypical, meaning Mm -hmm. teaching them social skills that make us feel more comfortable as neurotypical, right? Instead of, you know, if I think of it, what do they say? You can't fit a square peg into a circle or a Mm -hmm. circle around a round peg. Yeah. So we're always thinking about trying to change the peg, right? Mm -hmm. But I say, let's change the hole instead. Let's change the environment. Let's accommodate to them because it should not be on their shoulders to change because the world is more neurotypical. Which is so important for us to acknowledge. I recently attended a a talk, Dr. David Norwell, around ADHD and strategies to help people with ADHD. And Mm -hmm. something that really resonated from that conversation was for us to not develop systems, expectations, plans for someone with ADHD to fit into our world. Mm -hmm. So that if a flexible start time for a day works better for them, have a flexible start time, right? Instead of exactly, the, you have to be at the office at five to nine to punch in at nine. That doesn't work for everybody, right? Or or the way we manage calendars or, right? So I think it's really important for us to, to shift that narrative. And then also thinking of the couple perspective, just because the way I might do something doesn't mean that a partner might do it the exact same way. I mean, we can break that into even that all brains are diverse. And I loved what you had said on on your Instagram space, which was all bodies and brains listen and learn differently. All of it, right? That's what you're saying. All of it. Yeah. But then when we come to if one partner has ADHD and the other doesn't, they're going to process and experience the world differently. Yeah. And when I'm questioning any parenting style or a boundary I'm setting, whether with my daughter or my husband, or even recently with um, like holiday traditions, I've gotten in this very 
righteous mindset of now learning to question things. I'm like, well, why do we do gifts for Christmas? Like, why do I have to share, Mm -hmm. buy a bunch of gifts to show people that I care about them at this time of year on this day, which I understand the significance of the holiday and like a religious aspect, but like, why do I have to give you a gift? Or like, why is this important to me? Like, why am I so, why do I care so much about her wearing this on this day? Is it really important? Is it to me? Is it because everybody else has this color in that picture? I've been really in this phase of really questioning the boundaries I set or the boundaries other people set or society. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really where it starts because if someone asks you, well, why do I need to show up at seven o'clock AM? And you can't answer other than this is the way we've always done it or right. because I want you to, or because if it's not serving the person who needs to do the thing in a way that honors their brain, you're not going to get the best of that person. Mm. So questioning those things really helps solidify and feel confident in everything that you do as a parent, whether with a neurodivergent or neurotypical, because I'm saying like, well, why is it important for me that we do X, Y, Z? Well, it's going to help her understand herself better and it's going to keep her safe and it's going to, okay, so, so I do need to stick to that. If the answer is like, I can't really like, then maybe I'll just let her do this one thing differently. And even though I don't get it, or I think it's weird or it doesn't fit in here, I'm going to let her do it. And that is the essence of neurodiversity, being a neurodiverse affirming person. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're also talking about sensory processing. Yes. And that is an important piece for us to also differentiate between the neurotypical versus the neurodivergent brain. What does that look like? What does sensory processing look like for the neurotypical brain? Yeah. So if anyone here has heard sensory processing disorder, you've heard the context of the word, but what is sensory processing? Like what is that process and what does it look like? So in a neurotypical brain, so wherever anyone is listening right now, you are taking in sights from the environment, smells, sounds, feelings from the external world. So right now for me, I see some bright lights in front of me. I can hear some cars going by on my street. I can feel the warmth of my socks. If I think about it, I can smell the coffee off of my desk and I can hear my own voice talking. There's a lot of sensations going on. My stomach is full. I'm not feeling rumbles in my stomach. Those are all sensations that I am taking in from the world around me and from inside my body. And they are kind of in the background sending messages to my brain, which is what allows me to call them out and what they are. Mm -hmm. But then my brain automatically says, these things are not really important. The cars on the outside are not important. We're going to kind of like tune that out for you. The bright lights are there, but you don't need to look at them or turn them off or run away or close your eyes. The smell of the coffee is there and this might be alerting your brain a little bit. So your brain kind of just automatically filters things out, right? Now, if instead of the smell of the coffee, I smelt burning smoke, I would not be able to focus on this conversation anymore. My brain would probably get up and be distracted. Instead of hearing the cars driving on the street, I heard an ambulance or my baby crying. I would not also then be able to focus. My brain would not automatically filter that out. My brain would send that to the part of my brain that's like, you need to go into action and do something about this. Mm. And that is how we function day to day, right? That is a neurotypical brain of processing, constantly filtering things out. And it's constantly labeling. Do I need to do something with this information, with the sensory information, or can I ignore it? Mm -hmm. And if I do need to do something about it, what do I need to do? 
So that's a very surface level idea of how sensory processing works within the nervous system. A neurodivergent brain who has sensory processing difficulties might have a challenge with any part of the brain from either recognizing enough of the sensory input from the environment. It wouldn't hear sounds as clearly or maybe not be able to process what it is. So it might not take it in. It might not register sensory input as efficiently. It might not label it appropriately. So maybe it's saying, oh, I think I hear someone talking outside my door, but maybe it's not talking. Maybe it's like TV or the radio. And they also might have a part of the system that's challenged where it's the response. And the brain might say, you need to do something and it is fight or flight. When really what you should be doing is maybe ask what's going on or take a second look. And so if any part of that system is kind of unrefined or needs some support, you're going to see some behavioral things. So let me give you an example for people listening, what this looks like in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. So a neurotypical brain would hear all of those sounds in the classroom, uh, maybe teachers talking in the hallway, papers shuffling, you see a teacher writing on the board, you see classmates next to you, um, standing up and putting things in their backpack, a lot of things going on. And a neurotypical brain can kind of mute all of those things in tunnel vision and focus on what the teacher is writing on the board. A neurodivergent brain who maybe has a harder time filtering those things out will maybe look at everything that's going on around them. They might have to tune into everything they're hearing and they'll hear the conversation in the background, but they have to look and see who it is or they might not be able to identify that those sounds in the background are actually benign and like they, mm -hmm. nothing they have to do with. And they might over process that or overreact from it because they're so hypersensitive to sound so much so that they now cannot control focusing on the teacher. And what happens is, oh, you're not listening. Pay attention. Face forward. Or right. maybe the child is covering their ears or it's a child who gets up and runs around because mm. they don't know what else to do. But from an outside perspective who doesn't know that that child's neurodivergent or doesn't understand the process of it might just say, you know, oh, every day at math class, Johnny just doesn't listen, gets up and runs around the classroom. So Johnny is so distractible. Johnny yeah, can't yep. pay attention. Johnny doesn't so, listen. Mm -hmm. So we of... need to put a timer and make him sit there for 20 minutes or worse, stay in from recess because he didn't listen to math or he gets a detention or he gets whatever it is that's not really understanding that the reason why Johnny got up and left his seat was because the sensory thing was too overwhelming for him in that moment that he had to literally flight, like fly away from, from his seat in order to regulate his nervous system. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And so the one other thing I want to say quickly about this is that there's so many different profiles for sensory processing. So kind of a small sensory cup, you register sensory input more intensely than others at a higher frequency than others. And so you get more overstimulated quickly and for longer durations. So if you think of a sensory cup, I want you to think if a cup is overflowing or if it's empty, both of those are signs of dysregulation. We kind mm. of want it at like the just right level, okay? Uh -huh. So there are also thresholds where they have humongous sensory cups and they're never really being met with the sensory input that their nervous system craves or needs in order to feel regulated. Oh, and that's so, interesting. What's, give me yeah. an example of that. 
Yeah. So there's two kinds of high thresholds. So the small, the small sensory cup are your highly sensitive, sensory sensitive kids call them low thresholds, meaning it doesn't take much to meet the threshold. Mm -hmm. There's two sensory profiles that have a high threshold and they look different clinically and just behaviorally, they look different. So the high threshold, large sensory cup kids that we call low registration. So their sensory cups are pretty empty and pretty big. They're just passively missing out on input from the environment. So they tend to look a little bit more either withdrawn or they get misunderstood a lot as lazy or lethargic. And like they really like sedentary tasks, but it's more so because they're not as alert. Their nervous system is not awake and attuned to the environment because the lights aren't as bright. Maybe the sounds aren't as loud. They're a little slower to process things, but they get more regulated when you provide them more sensory input. The challenge is they're not seeking it out intentionally. They can't really understand that their body needs it. Okay. And there's a lot of kids like this. Then there's the high threshold kids, large sensory cup, but we say there's like a hole in it. So the more sensory input Mm. you put in, the more it comes out and they are just never getting regulated at all. And these kids are insatiable for sensory input. Their nervous system is so hungry for it. And these are the kids who really know what their nervous system needs and they seek it out, but it's usually in like really intense ways, unsafe ways or maybe inappropriate ways. So kids who take like a lot of risks by like jumping off of high surfaces or as many times as you say, don't touch that. They've got to touch that or squeeze it. And they give the tightest hugs without knowing how tight they're squeezing or their voice can be really, really loud or they're moving so, so, so fast that they're bumping into their friends unintentionally. I think sensory seekers, which is what we call these kids with the big cup with the holes in it, They get misunderstood a lot in the class as like the bad kid, the impulsive ones, the ones who are roughhousing, and they just are less aware of how their strength is sometimes or how fast they're moving. And sometimes even if they're aware of it, they can't even really control their actions because their nervous system is telling them to do something else. I just want to connect this to Elaine Aaron's highly sensitive person book because she talks about the sensation seekers in it. Yeah, she does. She does. Yeah. So she goes through the quiz of, are you a highly sensitive person? And then is your partner a highly sensitive person? And then she also asks questions of, are you a sensation seeker? Is your partner a sensation seeker? Because then you can imagine then pairing them up. And so in her book, I can't remember what the title is, but this one was specific to partners. She's trying to help couples see like, where are you going to have faults or disconnections. Yeah. Faulty meaning like a faulty like break line or something where you're like not going to have this motor of your relationship go forward because you're both having different needs on a sensory level. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that piece. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it can be really hard managing everybody's different sensory cups. If you're thinking it can be like feeling like a math equation, right? And especially between partners, especially between siblings, especially between parent Mm. and child. I get the question all the time, Laura, I am a sensitive parent, but my child is a sensory seeker. Like, what do I do? I am so overwhelmed. And that makes sense. And my answer usually to that is one, I think that it's already such an asset that you recognize that you have differing sensory needs and use Mm -hmm. that to your advantage to educate your child that you both have different needs. What a beautiful, concrete, uh, relatable way to talk about different brains than 
within the same household mm. as someone that you see every day and use that to model. My body doesn't feel comfortable with this right now. I'm putting in headphones. I'm still here next to you, but my sensory cup is small for sound and it's feeling overwhelmed. I see your body, your big sensory cup for movement and sound is not being filled enough right now. So you have that space in your room mm -hmm. to get that movement or that you know, sound that you need to make over there. And that's totally okay to call those things out in such an objective way that it removes it from, you're annoying me, like, get out of my space. Like, this is too much, right? Which is what I want to scream. Right, of course, we all want to scream that, right? I'm picturing 20 years down the road and we can talk about these needs. So coming from the emotion-focused perspective that I work in, coming from the couple perspective, this is the most beautiful example of what our children one day could do is to have the needs conversation, which is the, my sensory cup is overwhelmed right now. I really need to go look after myself right now and then be able to say, oh, I've got this need. And you say, okay, well, I can do that after, right? So we're back to this oh, yeah. needs conversation of what it looks like to have a healthy relationship. Just calling that out. And even I've been getting so used to calling it out as it's happening to me. The oh. other day I said, you know what? I said, my sensory cup is a little overflowing from today. I'm about to sit down for dinner. I don't really want to talk. I told her, I said, I want to eat that. I want to sit next to you and eat, but I'm not going to want to talk. And I know you like to talk during dinner. I need a few minutes to get food in my body to dip out from my sensory mm -hmm, cup. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to sit here and, and be next to you. You can talk to daddy, but I really, really need some quiet to eat my food by myself. And this is what allowed me to eat there versus I would have stood in the, in the kitchen and ate by myself because I was at that moment <laughs> when you're so hungry and I'm like, do not talk to me because I'm so aware of that. And we want them to know if you're hungry or tired or sick, automatically you are your nervous system. That is the definition of dysregulation mm -hmm. when it does not have those basic needs met. Hungry, mm -hmm. sick, or tired. And so if one of those things is true, then to be aware of that. And you might tell people, I'm not feeling my best right now. Mm -hmm. Or, And I've told her too the other day, you might hear my voice sound a little cranky. It's not because of you. I didn't get the best sleep last night or I'm feeling overwhelmed. We just came from a busy store and I'm trying mm -hmm. to take deep breaths. I will call it out to her and she goes, okay. And she gets it. And I, I, I love it. It feels so good. It gets me really excited. Oh, it gets for, me like, so excited. Them doesn't it? It's just like yeah. when we, I feel like when we first learned about this kind of parenting style, which feels so new and like a new mm. language. Mm -hmm. But then after a while, I'm like, this is actually common sense to just tell them how you feel in words that are more respectful and in more intentional rather than the like explosive way to say it. But right. I don't have to hide it from her. I can get ahead of it and make the yeah. narrative be that it's not you. Maybe it's not you personally, but like your sensory needs right now are conflicting with mine mm -hmm. and I need to take care of my body this way. So this is my boundary. If you can't stop your body from doing that because your body really needs it, then I'm going to have to move my body over here. Mm -hmm. Or maybe later I couldn't move my body away from you because we were stuck in a car in traffic and now we're home. And I'm a little cranky and it's because my sensory cup is overflowing. I need a mm -hmm. minute or I'm sorry for yelling at you. I need you. Or I, I can only do one book tonight. I really need to go to my bed and lay down. Like so many things of being able to have your needs met by just being upfront about it and clear and transparent. It's so simple, but it's so powerful. 
it takes a lot of self-work to get to this place because tied in there is guilt and shame, is the guilt tripping, passive aggressiveness, martyrdom that comes from perhaps difficult caregivers in our lives. It comes from shedding these old layers that we have as parents. This is the key piece that I'm talking about in my book. Uh, I didn't sign up for this, which you said, this isn't what we expected as parents. And I'm thinking, yes, I didn't sign exactly up for this it. in our relationships, right? Oh, I love that title. Thank you. But it's this piece where we're teaching. So I'm teaching in this book, autonomous connection, interdependence, not this fused state of I'm going to sit here and answer you with short responses. And then you're going to take it personally and make it all about yourself. It's the I am an autonomous individual in mm -hmm. front of you. And I have an experience and you have an experience. And mm -hmm. our job is to find a way to communicate those back and forth, not to personalize them, not to attach yeah. our self-worth to it, but rather how do we negotiate co-creating this space together? Yeah. That's what we're doing. That's like, that's, that is what you're doing in terms of teaching parents to do this with their children. Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing with your daughter. And then that's what we're where it comes in with a couple of piece. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You have a free download for parents. I have it linked in the episode. Tell us about that free download. Yeah. So it's, it's basically what I started to talk about here about the different sensory profiles, those three main sensory profiles, the small sensory cup and the two big sensory cups. And it's in a nice little handout for parents. So you can better understand your child's sensory needs and maybe identify some things there. And one thing I forgot to mention here that I'll quickly insert here, but I also have a podcast episode if anyone wants to hear about it. It's on the idea of mixed thresholds, which I almost always mm. get after I introduce the different cups. And they're like, yes. I think my kid has like both. I'm like, yes, mm. very common where you could have a small sensory cup for sound, but maybe a really, really big one with holes in it for movement mm. and they can spin and hang upside down and move endlessly. So you could be sensitive to something and seek another. And that's completely common and something that happens a lot. But yeah, so that's a great download for parents. If you're hearing this and you're like, you want to learn more, that's a perfect place to start. And where can people find you? I have my own podcast over at the Sensory Wise Solutions podcast for parents, which you're going to have to follow us over there to hear the next part of this conversation where we talk about how to navigate the dynamic between two partners who are parenting a neurodivergent child. So that's my podcast. And I am also hanging out on Instagram at the OT Butterfly. And I have a website at the OTButterfly.com. Thank you, Laura. I am so excited to share this episode with people. And also please make sure that you then come join us on part two, because we're going to continue the conversation. Yes, I, I will see you over there. Remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for the care from a licensed mental health care provider. See you next week. What's up, guys? I'm Gabrielle Stone, host of FML Talk. After being love-bombed, married, and cheated on, trust me, I've got some perspective on love, heartbreak, trauma, and healing. FML Talk has become weekly therapy for my listeners, where I give you a safe space to heal with, of course, a few F-bombs thrown in. Fun girl talk episodes, solo episodes that will guide you on your healing journey, and guests with stories that will leave your jaw on the floor. Grab a cocktail and come hang with me every Wednesday on FML Talk.